0: is Steve Balton and you are here on My Turning Point where this week we are joined by a longtime friend the great DJ, producer, songwriter all around just great dude Cascade, really fun conversation with him on all he has going on hope you enjoy it as much as we do it is always a pleasure to talk to Cascade Hi, cool dude well thanks so much for, for doing this again and having us into your studio
1: And so what is your turning point moment? my turning point moment uh Yes, completely unscripted here. It's good to <laughs> <laughs> make that. I'm glad we shouldn't compare tape A and tape B. Um, my turning point moment. I well, wait, so let me clarify that for those who don't know, because
0: that never aired. We did record an episode last year, but uh, when Sunsoak got canceled it didn't make sense to do the interview because we talked so much about Sun
1: Soaked yeah, so, it, just, it, it would total- have been weird to run that I was like hey don't run that please <laughs> I think I shot you an email like don't run that I just sat and talked to you for an hour about Sun Soaked and now it's not happening
0: but of course there's always other things going on so it's all good And yes, so but I honestly don't even remember what turning point moment you picked
1: I, I have no memory of that The one that always jumps out to me when I kind of stop and think about this, there's a couple of different answers that I give, but the one that I think is the most honest one is uh, it was Winter Music Conference 2003, which is a winter music conference. It's basically where all the DJs and industry people for electronic music converge on Miami. Tons of Europeans because kind of it's nice that it's in Miami because it's a center point for us right so people from the west coast people from the east coast and people from all over Europe we all meet in Miami it's every um, March by
0: the way since every March
1: left. still happening I mean it's been going on for I don't even know how many years now 30 years or something like this um anyway uh, it's the year that It's You It's Me came out and It's You It's Me came out right before the conference, like, I don't know, a week or two before something like this. I can't remember the timing of all of it. But in um, Ohm Records, the label that I was uh, signed to at that time, uh, had a showcase that night, which was very typical. All these labels and, uh, you know, different crews would kind of book local um, clubs and showcase their talent and kind of like promote the records that they're doing or the compilations that they're putting out or whatever, whatever you know these different crews were promoting. Um, so they booked me at that show, and it was just you know one of those things. Around every winter music conference, there was always like a few breakout tracks that every no matter what party you went to, everyone was playing that, even if that label had nothing to do with that song it was the hot song of the moment so, playing. so it's you it's me that single that I had just put out with Ohm Records was kind of all over conference not that I was totally aware of that I mean I knew it was being played um, but that night you know The place holds like, I don't know, seven, eight hundred probably legal capacity. There's probably 1,200 people stuffed into this room in Miami, whatever. And it's just heaving. Uh, I played after King Britt, a guy that I had, you know, admired from afar and had met him, uh, you know, I don't know, a few months prior to that. So that was already like a cool moment for me. I'm like playing with one of these guys that have like always. I thought, man, this guy makes incredible music. And I step up to the, the decks and the party's raging. I'm extremely nervous. I put on it You, It's Me. You know, the guitar riff comes in for that track and the place just goes bananas. I mean, they just go completely ham. It makes it about a third of way into the record. <laughs> and like the power goes off in the booth and the record stops and whatever. And I actually get to play the, you know, they power it back up. The place is going crazy, cheering, screaming. They didn't care that the power went off. That was actually more fun for everybody, right? (laughs) Like an unpredictable unscripted moment. And I put the needle back on the record and the guitar kicks in and the place goes bananas again. So I got to live that moment twice, but, uh, The big turning point, and not that my life immediately changed after that moment, but it was kind of the first time that I realized like, wow, I wrote a record that people responded to that. Okay, cool. Maybe it was only a room of a thousand people in Miami, but I know how to write and produce a record that's going to connect with people. And I think if I can connect with that thousand people there and make a record that has impact, I can do this on a on a bigger level. And I think that it was really there because up until that point in my life, like music was something cool. It was a passionate hobby that I was kind of doing and, you know, putting my toe into. And I think for the listener, for a fan of mine, when they hear that, they might be like, what? That's crazy. Because I mean, that was my first full length album. I was already a decade into my career, but I still was kind of like, eh, is this going to work? You know, like, <laughs> what, what is this? <laughs> you know, what am I doing here? Um, but that was the night that I went home and kind of was like, I, I think I can do this on a bigger level. I think there's something more than just, a, you know, this being a passionate hobby.
0: Well, see, what I love about that, and, and what's always fascinating to me, is when we do these turning points, meaning every artist, it's interesting to see how it applies to your life today. And I would imagine that confidence is still something that you take with you in writing. But what's also interesting is a writer and a producer, you're always second guessing yourself because every artist is hypercritical. So, are there those moments that you can then look back at where you sort of draw upon that and realize, like, okay, you still take that confidence from that night, and it applies to current stuff you're working on. For
1: sure, I think all these things that happen on the road or in the studio—all these—I mean, even in your personal life, not just in your professional life—but all these things that have happened to me along the way—they kind of change you and transform you, and uh, you progress and regress. And um, you know, every time I sit down to work on music, that's—it's all part of my story. Um, an- another example that I use of kind of a turning point that's much more dramatic <laughs> when, like, I'm talking to like some young kids, like, "Hey, Mr. DJ, how did you do it?" You know, I, I, I get <laughs> these opportunities. Did they really call you Mr. DJ? <laughs> <laughs> Cascade, how did you do it? Um, the other one I used in 2009 for the first time I played on the main stage at EDC, and um, I had to really fight Pasquale for that billing and for that slot and for, I mean, when I say fight, I mean, honestly, we met uh, here in Los Angeles, you know, in a boardroom that we had rented and set aside with me and my manager and my agent and Pasquale and his team. And, you know, and I slammed my fist down on the (laughs) table and was like, I deserve this. I'm not going to freaking play some side stage and, you know, I understand that these guys are huge in Europe and you got this guy here and their managers are leaning on you, but damn it, I'm playing on the stage or I'm not playing for you at all. This is a Los Angeles festival and I'm an artist from California and you're going to put me where I deserve to be. I don't care about some guy from Amsterdam or these freaking dudes from Sweden. I don't care. And guess what? Your audience doesn't either. <laughs> so I was like, you're going to put me in the right place. And you know, I demanded this and made a big deal. And, um, <clears throat> he was cool and he was like, all right, cool. You know, I didn't realize I've never seen you and spoken to you like this. Cause I was very worked up. Um, and he's like, you know, cool. I've never seen you like this, man. Wow. You know, I was practically like crawling over this, you know, <laughs> this conference. Your bandages are holding you like, back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I think when he saw that, he was just like, all right, dude, cool. Listen, I don't, I'm not going to try and shortchange you. And like, I, I understand you definitely deserve this moment and it's yours to have. And it was cool. Uh, it was something. That when it actually happened, and when I, you know, got up there and played the show to stand in front of you know whatever eighty ninety thousand people in the Coliseum and be able to cut the volume low on, you know the the chorus of Angel on my shoulder and the whole place is singing along and you know Pasquale was just like wow and I mean even me just going back and thinking of that moment it just was one of those moments like. Uh, cool, I'll never be the same after this. This is this is a change my life. Like this is very tangible. I walked off that stage a different person. I think the other promoters there and even the fans there were like, damn, I knew Cascade was big, but whoa, this is nuts. <laughs> like the whole festival's here to see this guy right now. So it was cool. It was a huge moment for me.
0: But what's interesting about that is it's funny for me from a turning point moment, I would imagine it's far more um compelling as a turning point moment the fact that you stood up for yourself and had that confidence and had that assertion versus you know having the 80 90,000 fans there is cool and it reminds me of when we did the Coachella thing for Rolling Stone and yeah. I don't remember what year that was but it was like there was like 80,000 people it was crazy it was one of the biggest crowds they ever had at Coachella for a main stage but from a turning point moment, which was more impactful to you you think being on that stage and having everybody there or for you fighting for the fact that you knew this you believed in it and you said okay i'm i'm <clears throat> standing your ground and again because that's one of those things it's like it's funny when you say the kids come up to you i think that's a much better lesson for kids is to stand your ground and say like okay cool you know what that's great this is who i am and this is and have it with belief not in arrogance but
1: just a belief that you've earned it. For sure. It's, it's, it's huge. That's And you know what? I keep a little notebook as I <laughs> roll around the world and travel and stuff, things that I want to... And in my column of... Because I love writing and I write this blog and I've kept it for years, but um, one of my subjects that, that I want to write about is is value. You determine your own value. Like there's no... The, what you 're alluding to is the best part of that story is that I sat in a room with a promoter and I wasn 't willing to take no as an answer and that That is a great part of the story that doesn 't get told very often <laughs> but um but it was a cool it was a cool point and that and if you 're right, if I was talking to these kids and I had like a longer dialogue with them, I would tell that part of the story and be like, look, man." And that's why I want to write this blog piece. It's like, you determine your own value. And I think as an artist, that's something that's so, it was so hard for me to understand. Um, And I think that's because I'm doing what I love. So, I mean, I remember the first time a guy booked me, And he's calling me up and hey, I'll pay you this amount of money and like whatever, I'll get you out here and the night's great and whatever. You know, he's telling me that it's worth my time and you're gonna have a blast and it's whatever, you know, and kind of near the end of the conversation, I'm gonna pay you X amount of dollars or whatever. It's like, I could have cared less. Wasn't about getting the five hundred dollars for the show. It was about going out there and experiencing this and rocking the spot you know having a killer show and like going to Vancouver and making new fans or playing to a group of people that I've never played to before like they've heard a few of my records like what is this guy's show like I think that was more important to me Um, so my point is sometimes in the beginning of the career I really didn't have a grasp or knowledge or understanding of that like i didn't understood the the economics of having a job being an artist i didn't know how to value my art or my time because i loved doing what i was doing so much it was like hey man i'll pay you in cheeseburgers i was like i'm there dude yes <laughs> like you know so once things started you know started rolling i had to kind of like step back for a minute and and that's cool cuz at about that time that's when people other people outside of you take interest in your career and you know um luckily in my case you know m- my wife was there and helped me understand that and and I had a great manager and you know people started coming around me that helped helped me understand that you know helped me understand the business side of things rather than just like cool I'm just going to run around the world and have a great time, which there's nothing wrong with that. Right. (laughs) Because it is a great time. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but it makes sense. I mean, it's funny. I started, my first national clips were for free as well because you just need clips and then at some point you have to determine, you know, and it's interesting though because I I hear people say all the time, that's that's a cliche that gets used a lot with me. And I'm not saying, by the way, when I say it's a cliche, I'm not saying people don't mean it. Right. But it just becomes a cliche because it's said so frequently, but I have people say to me often, oh, I would play for free. I would do this for free. But at some point, if you want to make a living at it, yeah. you say like, oh, I would, I would have done this for free. But it's like, you know, because I have a lot of musicians say this because you do love it so much. It is just your passion. It's something you love doing. Right. You know?
1: But totally true. But what I understood is, well, one, I was living in San Francisco, so rent wasn't cheap. I mean, living in California. So I had to overcome that. I was newly married as my career kind of started to take off. So I felt kind of this pressure, like, I need to provide. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I got to help out here. (laughs) Like, wow, she's got a great job. I should probably do something too. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, I don't know. It just takes a moment to kind of understand that part. I, I think in San Francisco early on, Uh, There was kind of this cool, deep house music scene that was really bubbling up at the time that I moved there in 2000. Um, And what's important in those scenes, it seems to me, from my perspective, I'm not saying this is true. This is some kind of universal truth. I'm just saying in my experience here, you kind of need some money to be injected into the arts for it to flourish, right? Because... If I was working a daytime job all the time, I wouldn't have been able to sit in the studio and to take time to write a song or produce a beat or like, uh, you know, just kind of go out there and, you know, look at different ways to make music and 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 investigate me as an art again, artist. I just wouldn't have had the time to do that. But as things kind of started rolling. Um, Having that success, you know, gave me the ability to do that, um, and that, that part's important because if you take that away, it's like, oh man, cool! I got to go like make sandwiches so that I can pay rent, and then all of a sudden, my time to create comes. You know, so you only know, get a little sliver of time there.
0: You know, something you said is so. F-
1: <clears throat> Excuse me. All
0: right, we'll try that again. But something you said is so fascinating to me because it's a really interesting thing that um, when you were talking about the fact, like, oh, my wife has a great job, I should contribute too. It's interesting because something that comes up so often with musicians is sort of that moment where you realize that you could make a living at it, where you could do this. But it's an interesting thing is, as this is just something that fascinates me, probably because I'm around entertainment and I'm around musicians so much. And even two weeks ago, I was interviewing Billy Joe Armstrong, right, who I've known for years. And I love Green Day and I love Billy Joe. And he was joking. He's like, well, I got into this so I wouldn't have to grow up. And he wasn't kidding. You know, but it's an interesting thing that I think exists in society today where that point where you start to realize, like, oh, I'm a quote unquote adult, you know? And and so, which I mean, varies so much for everyone. Obviously, when you have kids, it's a different thing, but it's an interesting thing. Talk about that pride of when you could make it and and also that importance of being able to say, okay, I could give, because most musicians who are just starting off, a lot of them aren't necessarily married, but because you were married when you were starting off, you know, you had that separate responsibility that other people don't have of like, you know, like Foo Fighters just announced their van to her. You know, you couldn't live in a van <laughs> and be like, okay, cool, we're going to play every shithole club in America.
1: And make it work.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I, I had started, I mean, I don't know. So, I so was, not to get too personal, was, but it's
1: just interesting to me because most musicians don't have that experience. Right, well, I was well into my career and I'd been doing it for a while. I just think nobody around me, my wife included, I mean, I don't want to speak for her, but I don't think anyone really took m- me seriously, including myself. I kind of was just like, hey, I'm having fun, cool, I'm doing this. And I was able to kind of make enough money that I could pay the rent. So that was cool. <laughs> like <laughs> I could buy groceries, I could pay rent, whatever. Um And in that time when it was still just kind of carefree and fun and I was just being young and loose and just, you know, whatever, not caring about much, um, except for my wife. (laughs) That's when we got married. And then I think it put kind of a layer of pressure like, well, am I going to take this seriously or not? And we got married, we were pretty young, you know, I was 25 years old. So I knew I had a little bit of leeway. It wasn't like that pressure didn't like drop down on me like a brick. You know, we didn't have kids right away or anything like that. It was more like the slow kind of cooking, (laughs) you know, like that built up over the time. But fortunately, my the my success kind of mirrored that as there was more pressure, like, wow, she's really got a good job. It'd be cool if this started to work better, (laughs) you know, like she's. She has the insurance. Everything's through her. So it was that you know it was unequal for a while. But um, then my things started to catch up. I think it just added a little bit of pressure. But it wasn't anything that I was like, oh man, I got to make it. I got to write a big song. I was always kind of like, oh, this is fun. I'll just keep doing it. And I think that was mainly because my parents were so. I mean, I'm the son of a banker. I grew up in the Midwest. I'm, a, you know suburban Chicago. Everything's kind of quite conservative and down the line. And like, you know, Chicago's this very blue-collar, hardworking people that are respectful. Um, you know, they're not like, go out and live your dreams, be an artist. It's it's not <laughs> it was not the kind of house that I grew up in. Not that they were against that they were just like well you better have a plan b <laughs> you know like that's cool you want to go and like screw around that's fun but you better have a plan b you know and, um you know so they and i did i was kind of like ah you know i had a degree in school and i could go out and do something with that write, or do whatever <laughs> do whatever we, wherever that would have led me who knows um
0: so what was the first moment that your parents realized that you had quote unquote. it's funny because that was one of my favorite things being at Forbes or still being at Forbes is the number of people who are like for, you know like the number of people who would post on social media Forbes my parents would be so like when Grohl got and I got on the phone for his first Forbes interview he's like Forbes? he's like my dad would be so fucking proud <laughs> You know, because it's like okay, it's right. like a magazine your parents read, right? And it was a business magazine. They actually,
1: know this, they- yeah.
0: Or like Mayor Hawthorne, I had him on, and he was like, and then he posted, he's like, look, mom, I'm on Forbes, you know, on social media. So what was the first moment for your parents where they were like, oh, okay, I guess this isn't just a hobby, or you can make, you know, <sighs>
1: what, what was that? I well, my dad was just like, hey. If you can get somebody to pay you five thousand dollars to do this, because he he was in banking, but he did occasionally do public speaking in the banking world, and he's like, you know, wow, these guys every once in a while somebody will pay me five thousand bucks. Of course, I'll take that. I'll go across fly across the country and speak about banking, whatever. And he's like, you know, if you can ever get to that, and I remember I got like my first gig for five grand I'm like these guys are gonna pay me five thousand bucks to go play a show and he's like holy crap that's (laughs) that's like real money you're actually doing this and he was kind of like at a moment like um but I mean even when he heard my first album he was kind of like wow this is cool my mom was always like oh you can do whatever you want you know kind of thing like a mom yeah yeah you want to be an astronaut you know like (laughs) I'm sure you can go to the moon um she's always very supportive uh but I think when they heard the first album, they were like, wow, this is cool. My dad's only question was like, does the beat, it's so in there all the time. Like, it's just so constant. And I'm like, yes, that's the kick drum. Um, it's in there a lot. It's dance music anyway.
0: What was their musical taste growing up? Was there one thing that it was like, okay.
1: Oh, man. A lot of Bee Gees, ABBA, you know. Typical, Great stuff. typical stuff. Wonderful stuff. Carpenters, uh, that uh, you know, Mormon Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> a lot of that <laughs> in my house. Um, all, all over the place. Um, but it wasn't. You know, music was in my house, but it wasn't like. You know, I don't know. My mom was like, you know, everybody's got to take a couple years of piano lessons, but for whatever reason, I was able to get out of that quicker than than all all my other brothers and sisters i must have been better at complaining i don't know i don't know what happened there the magic of saying no do you play now um a little bit here and there well now now i'm on the other side right get i told you you have to practice 30 minutes tonight (laughs) get over here you know (laughs) i'm that guy now i'm that dad like come have you practiced tonight you know it's the karma (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm that guy. <laughs> no, I'm like, it's good, see? My kids, they get it. I'm like, look, you can do something like I do. It's good. You gotta have chops.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. And do the do the
0: kids, it's so funny because this comes up so often too. Doesn't matter how successful you are, you're you're never cool to your kids.
1: Oh my gosh, dude. Never you know. I live with two teenagers in my house. And my oldest one actually had the nerve to lecture me about music festivals. This is about a year ago. (laughs) You don't know anything about Coachella, Dad. I'm like, oh. You're like, I played to 80,000 people there. (laughs) I'm like, you know what? There's a lot of things you get to say to me, but you don't get to say that to me. I'm sorry. So, what,
0: what, what, I'm so fascinated with what this argument was about then that it's like, you don't oh, get to.
1: Oh, you know, she's 16 and wanted to go with a bunch of her friends. And, you know, I'm like, hold on. <laughs> What's happening here? Let's get in here. You know, what, how old are your friends? And what are you know? Anyway, I was just trying to get in there and understand what they were doing. And just even asking those couple questions, you don't know anything about this. Oh. I, I just
0: hope in that moment you pulled out the video of you playing on the main stage oh my so. gosh I
1: don't, listen I don't even have to put that the last Coachella ad that I saw that came on my feed they're still using this and I think they should because the video footage even when I look at it my eyeballs pop out is the drone footage uh, from 2015 when they you know go over the stage and it's just like I mean it might have been 80,000, 90,000 people, but if you told me it was 10 million, I would be like, yeah, okay, that looks like 10 million people. I mean, it looks like planet Earth is standing in front of me. It's yeah, I insane. remember that. Yeah, it's insane. And, I, and my kids have seen that, believe me. I flexed.
0: <laughs> and what was her response to
1: that? <laughs> Nothing. You don't know.
0: <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Cotella's
1: changed. You have no idea. <laughs> it doesn't matter what your resume is. Like, just like you said, your parents will never be cool. Yeah. That comes later. I forget when that switches, but yes, I'm eagerly awaiting. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) not when you're a teenager, man. No, no, it's not. (laughs) I will know nothing for a few more years.
0: (laughs) That is that is one of my favorite stories though of your kid saying to you you know nothing about Coachella.
1: (laughs) I'm like, oh,
0: oh man. So, For someone who knows nothing about music festivals, what do you have coming up? Because you're doing a bunch of tour dates now, the Redux Redux tour,
1: correct? Yeah, doing a handful of shows uh, around Redux. and uh, Miami, San Diego, um, Brooklyn, uh, and New Mexico, uh, which is cool. Meow Wolf, I've heard all this stuff and saw part of the documentary. So I was like, hey, if we can make it route through New Mexico, that'd be really cool. I want to check this out. Um, So doing a handful of shows and then... Really, like many people in my world, I, I'm just, uh, I'm playing so many festivals this spring and summer. I mean, honestly, it's it's endless. There's so many out there. I used to feel like, oh, there's those five or six, you know, Coachella kind of kicked it off. And then there's, oh, there's that one over there and this one down here. And, but now, I mean, and I think it's great. I just think it says how alive the... Um, you know live performance space is there's just so much going on and it's so healthy right now thank goodness knock on wood like
0: are there any new ones that you've done that really excited you or that that you know because again i think it's funny i'll tell you from the journalist standpoint when i get pitched on a festival now my first question what makes it different that's it that's my first question What makes this different than any other festival? So, what what to you has excited you and stuff you've done recently? That listen,
1: I I I love this conversation because I'm always looking for that unique thing, and I think the fans are as well. It's like now there's people that you know. I go to five festivals a year or whatever. You know, people are becoming very seasoned and educated. To me, location is everything. Honestly, it's like cool putting some tent up or a stage on some blacktop you know in a parking lot of some sports stadium just isn't that exciting i mean 10 years ago it might have been and certainly there are people that have built properties around those kinds of spaces but it's they've had to get a lot more creative to make the space work and I think Coachella is kind of like the end all be all I mean listen I'll travel to the farthest places corners of the world and I get there and for sure there's somebody like what is Coachella like I mean people want to know about it Um, too bad you don't know and I think part of the success is that it's you know on a beautiful field at an, an incredible beautiful time of year in California you show up there and it's you know, seventy-eight degrees during the day and uh sixty at night. So you need to go buy a sweatshirt. I mean, it's just perfect. Um, so I think these places that are taking time to curate, um, you know, and take time to really find unique locations. Electric forest has always been one of my favorites because you are you're in a forest. It's unique, it's incredible. Uh, it's fascinating to me. Um uh that they've been able to get people there and buku's the same way you know it's just out in the middle of nowhere but i think that's cool and it's it tells a story a lot of those festivals at work that are in these places that are so remote they've had to build it over 10 15 20 25 years it started out as you know a big group of friends and then it You know, it's over five and 10 years, it transformed into something that became unique and special. Um, For me, I'm really interested in these places. Like, I recently played in uh, Taiwan, Um, and it was massive. It was really big, it's a lot of people. The energy was through the roof. Um, You know, uh, the promoters did an amazing job at at, um, finding unique things. You know, a lot of these promoters now, if they've got these thirty or forty thousand people that are attending their festivals regularly, I think they all kind of realize like we need to bring something unique. So people are really out there searching and investing and trying to find uh, what's going to set their festival apart. Besides buying good talent, listen, that, let's not lose that part of the conversation because I think sometimes that is getting lost out there, um, which is unfortunate, especially for some of these guys that have kind of been grandfathered in, they're so used to just like, tickets sell now, you know? Coachella um,
0: sells out before the lineups announced.
1: You know? Yeah. Which I understand. They deserve that because they've bought talent responsibly for a long, long time and curated and made uh, a, a, a unique experience and an incredible festival. So they deserve that for a while. But I really hope, that they continue to do that and, and continue to push forward because if they don't, guess what? I, I assume the tickets will slowly dwindle and die off. It's like, listen, if these guys aren't going to continue, and this is for everybody. This I'm not speaking yeah. to Coachella and uh, you know Golden Voice. I'm saying all of them. It's like people want to see good music. I think that's the foundation of all of this stuff. As much as a lot of these promoters would like to kind of repackage it and change that, <laughs> you know, cause it'd be, cause I think musicians are hard to work with and we demand so much. Oh my gosh. If I don't have yellow M&Ms in my cart, I'm going to, I'm out of here, man. Yeah. Look, don't deal with that guy. Book somebody else. But it's important to have talent that, uh, that, you know, is, making and creating good music and, and, and moving the needle on pop culture. So for
0: you having done so soaked, you know, which is not happening this year, but having had that experience as a festival booker in the past, you and I have talked about this right now in 2020, what would be your dream festival bill? Who, who are the four artists you would put on there with you? <clears throat> oh man all personalities aside because I don't know who demands the yellow m and and I don't know who demands the green M&M's and I don't know who does that no just, just, you're, just, you're just, just
1: saying progressive like what does a cool bill look like well, well for I you just, as a fan for me as a fan listen the ticket that I just logged on to try and buy is this AEG thing that they're doing uh, what is it May 2nd you know with Morris the good had, Cruel like, World yeah yeah this Cruel World I mean there's five bands on there that I haven't seen in over two decades and I'm like alright this is freaking cool! They got these guys back together, you know? Yeah, for me it'd be somebody like cool. I'd be headlining alongside the Smiths. Oh wait, they're doing a reunion tour and I'm playing alongside them. Wonderful! That's amazing how that worked out. Yeah. So I think for me the nostalgia factor is really still big deal. I like to see that. Um, I mean, I was a huge fan of Manchester and that whole sound that was coming up. I think a lot of people in Chicago felt like a kinship with Manchester and what was happening there and what was happening in Chicago. Um, We were much more electronic leaning than they were, but there was definitely some shared kind of like two blue-collar towns that were having like a creative renaissance musically uh, happening at at, at similar times.
0: That's interesting. I never thought about that. So before you finish that question, if there's one Manchester song that you could remix, and when I say remix, you get the stems to, you get everything. You get to put the total cascade spin on it. What would be the Manchester anthem that you would want to play with?
1: I would never want to touch any of those things because it's almost like it's too sacred. It's in its perfect state it's like Joy Division Level Will Tear Us Apart as crappy as that mix sounds and it's crap it's just total garbage uh, if I put my engineer like producer hat on it's garbage but it doesn't f- matter it doesn't matter does always when I'm like with young producers I'm like who freaking cares dude is it a good idea is it does it like touch something inside of you does that like Break your heart? Are you freaking out when you listen to it? It doesn't matter. You don't have to spend two hours here retuning the kick drum. Look, listen to this song. This helped shape the I am as a human being. It sounds like garbage, but it's the most beautiful song ever. Like it doesn't matter, man. I mean, I don't know. Billy Ellish's record is uh, an incredible record, and that's on record, but it's like from a producer or engineer's thing, there's things I want to touch on there. You know, the first time I heard, it, I'm like, ah. I wish it didn't sound exactly like that. You know, I wanted to mess with the stems. Um, so I don't know that I would remix any classic song. I would, I don't know. I went down the Billy Joel thing. I was just thinking of like, who are, there's other modern records out there that like I don't agree with the like producer engineering decisions that they made, but it, that it doesn't matter. It's still a beautiful record. It's like you write a great song and it can, and it can withstand those kind of, weird things that guys like me have like uh why isn't a compressor on her voice like, what kind of, like <laughs> <laughs> you know anyway uh that's nerd stuff it's don't, all
0: good i don't right, mean so, to
1: dive too much into that but that's uh, but i deflected your question i guess so
0: the so the festival though because it's funny because you only mentioned the smiths which we all know that's not happening so morrissey <laughs> and you can't even have Morrissey and Johnny Moore on the same what, what, bill it's we're like,
1: talking we're talking fantasy okay. fantasy why, uh, why are you trying to crush my dreams man <laughs> uh, you know okay uh, who else would be on there um, you know I, I, I think of modern guys I really in the urban world I really have loved what Drake has done um, his last record was really cool and actually, that was cool for me at Coachella to play right before him. That was another kind of like, ah, is this really happening? This is cool. <laughs> like like kind of moment like, whoa. Um, so I think to round it out, he'd be cool. Who else would I have? Oh, man. Just like you said, these kind of answers change day to day, hour to hour. Um I think why Morrissey was right at the tip of my tongue is because I had just told you that story of not being able to get tickets to their show. (laughs) Hey, you guys need an opening act. (laughs) Um, Who else? What do I get? Three people? Oh, I don't know. Who's the third one? (laughs) So I got an old one and I got a very new current one. You know what? I, I would go with somebody super current right now, Billy Billy's last record is um, Billie Eilish's, um, I think what her and her brother are doing. It's so cool for me when somebody comes along in the pop world and just turns it on his head unexpectedly. I just love that because it's like, I feel like for the last few years, everything on Spotify was just, I felt like it was almost creating its own sound by everyone trying to copy to get into the top 100. And then somebody comes along and's like, nope, I'm going to actually do this thing over here that's completely different, and then it just works. And I always love acts like that and gravitate towards things like that. Um, so yeah, she's, she's doing something cool, and it's good to see that it's working on such a huge level. I mean, dude, my kids want to be her. They dress like her and are super inspired by her, and I just think that's cool that it can reach that far. I mean, from me to, you know, young kids, it's awesome.
0: Cool. And you have the four dates coming up that we talked about. Yeah. And then a bunch of festival stuff. New music, anything coming up?
1: New music, um, I'm putting a a, a Redux EP out right at the start of this kind of four run thing. And listen, this is more, this is more, I I did a, I don't know, 12 city tour uh, near the end of last year. And I had a couple songs that I wanted to finish up and kind of put that on. And there was a little bit of time at the beginning of this year. So it was more like, okay, I'll just do another EP, get out there, do a few more things. And then I, you know, I've been kind of slowly working on an album, um, and keeping things and putting all these cool ideas in a folder. And as they came along, um, just stashing stuff I don't know when that will take form, but I have set time aside um this spring and summer, so I think if all goes well, you know potentially late this year or at the beginning of next year yeah it, it's been a while i'm <clears throat> I'm overdue for a record for sure for a full length. I keep kind of like been ducking behind these e p s because they're kind of fun and um really self-indulgent because i don't have to care i don't have to have some master concept of an album uh, so it's been just very fun for me uh to kind of do those things and go out and you know bang it out and play in some clubs and, and enjoy that process but yeah an album is on its way i don't know i can it's out <laughs> there in front of me cool what do you want to add we didn't talk about um what do i want to add <clears throat> I don't know, not much anything, man. I don't know. Life life is good, man. I don't have any complaints, you know? This is, what a ride. It's always interesting to sit and think back to those old stories because it feels so recently to me, but yet so much has transpired since, you know, standing in that club, uh, you know, in the early 2000s and, you know, playing that record and having people freak out. I mean, really, it just feels like yesterday to me. Like, wow, what year was that? And it's like, oh, that was actually a really long time ago. (laughs) You know? So, um, I think that's cool, though, too,
0: because it's funny. Like, when I was doing the Green Day interviews, right, I was talking with Trey Cool about this, and he was talking about his moments of being starstruck, which are few and far between, but he happened to have met Pete Townsend. And he was really nervous meeting Pete Townsend and talking about that. And it's interesting, though, because we talked about the fact that, you know, then Pete Townsend was really cool to him and how, you know, what that meant to him. And I was like, but that's does it allow you then to, when you still have those moments of being starstruck, does it allow you then to have that empathy and take it to those kids who are meeting you guys and think about, oh my, you know, when you think about what it is meeting Pete Townsend, what it is for kids meeting Green Day. And he's like, that's interesting. But yeah, I definitely try and think about that. So I imagine for you, it's still... keep thinking about that stuff allows you to think about those kids who are now in the clubs today
1: doing it it's cool it's good to be reminded of that I'm mindful of it but I think as more time goes by it's hard to you know keep connected to that excitement and to be on the other side of that Um, for sure having those moments though and meeting other artists that I'm like huh is this happening? Yeah, it's cool to have those. So it was the last one for you that you had that moment? I mean, dude, I've had that moment all the time. I think my favorite story is when I, uh, in regards to this, is when I recorded with Perry Farrell for the first time. And I think maybe I've told you this story sometime because this is so funny. He came over to the studio and I mean, I was a big Jane's Addiction fan and you know, I'd, I'd seen him play in concert and I'd followed his career, and when he got into dance music, you know, it was cool. And ultimately, our paths crossed. We set up a, you know, we've become friends since then. But that first time that I met him, he's in the studio. Don't you guys like neighbors now? Yeah, we live very close to each other. Yeah. And I pass his house and like wave to him. Hey, Perry, what's up? It's, all, it's awesome. No, like, I only know this because
0: it's so funny because I remember last year when we did the one that did air the day before I had done Perry at his house and I was telling them that I was doing you the next day. They're like, you couldn't just do one trip?
1: <laughs> Which I think if we all would have known that would probably, I probably just went over to his house and like just... We could have just sat the <laughs> done it there, hung out. <laughs> yes, it's a very LA life. <laughs> like when I'm riding on the street, I see Perry on his bike, like riding his kids to school or something. <clears throat> but the first time I was in the studio with them, and it was the first time I had been in the studio with anyone really that had a name. A noteworthy name. But to me, I was like, oh, this is huge. And a lot of phone calls went back and forth between management to get that set up, which even made it more like of a big deal. In my head, it was like, ah, you know. But he comes in and we're all ready. And he listened to the song that I sent him. This idea it wasn't a song, it was just kind of like cool chord structure and some beats and whatever. And he's like, Yeah, I want to record something on this. And honestly, I set up the mic for him and I got everything kind of ready. And I mean, this was in a very small setup, it was a much smaller room than we're in here now. And I sat down at the computer and, like, I, I didn't know where the record button was all of a sudden. Like, my mind was just like, like, there was nothing there. I mean, thousands of hours I sat in front of a Pro Tools rig and recorded, and like, I was like, Okay, we record you now. Like and it took there it was not like a few seconds. It was like I had to shake myself out of it. Like, okay. Oh yes. Okay, wait. <laughs> I know how to record. Hold on. Wait. I mean, I kept my composure and I think he could have cared less and probably didn't even know he was probably adjusting his headphones or getting the mic ready or you know writing something down i know he had no idea but i mean i've told that a story a thousand times i mean after he left i went and got naomi and was like i i forgot how to record like it's the big red one on the screen like like i completely froze just because i was like oh man i'm sitting in here with one of my idols and we're making a song together like what is this? What is ha- what is my life? You know, so it was a cool moment. Cool. Yeah. All
0: right, dude. Thanks so much for having us here. Yeah.
1: Thanks for swinging through again. I appreciate it.
0: Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you have been here on my turning point, where we were joined this week by Cascade. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Like I said, I have known this guy for years, and always such a pleasure to talk to him. Thanks.
2: different sizes of businesses big business small business that awkward growing phase business the running this thing from my garage business and the omg we can't hire fast enough business wherever you are in your business journey hubspot's powerful but easy to use crm platform grows with you it lets all of your teams work together seamlessly whether that's just you and your roommate or colleagues across multiple time zones grow better with hubspot by connecting your people your customers and your business learn more at hubspot.com Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.